You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for to AOA today. There's a lot coming on today's program. We're going to get an update on global supply chains with Dr. Jason Miller, Professor of Supply Chain Management at Michigan State here in just a moment. Then in segment two, we're going to talk about diesel supplies going forward. Terry Viswanath, the lead economist of power and water at Cobag, has been looking at gasoline demand. And as it declines, how's that going to impact diesel supply? Fascinating question. In segment three, we're going to check in with Krista Harden. She's the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. We're going to talk about what the dairy export business looks like on the eve of World Milk Day, which is tomorrow. And then finally, we're going to close the show with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. We saw the hog markets go on a rocket ship yesterday up the limit. Dennis is going to join us with the uh, new changes to that industry. Before we dive into all of that, however, let's talk supply chains. This conversation with Dr. Jason Miller, professor at uh, the Eli Broad School at Michigan State University, was prompted because yesterday there was an announcement of a new early warning system put together by the countries in the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. And I was curious, would this matter? So, Dr. Jason Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. What is this early warning system these countries are trying to put together? Yeah, so essentially what we're having is, um, I'd say, sort of a broad effort to try to get a sense of, you know, manufacturing glitches that may be arriving, um, you know, before it starts affecting, you know, further downstream production. So when we start thinking about the issues that we've had during COVID of, you know, semiconductor shortages being sort of the classic example, there's sort of a push for more early warning um, of these issues and just kind of, kind of a systematic data collection and reporting process to make, uh, you know, folks more aware of issue, of these things. You know, this sounds like a good idea on the uh, at the ten thousand foot level, Doctor Miller. Would something like this have changed anything materially during the COVID or Russia Ukraine war crisis in supply chain management? Probably not too much. And I think the big thing that's important for everybody to understand is what COVID has done, and then you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Is it? It has prompted the largest of companies, which, by the way contribute a disproportionate amount to global trade that the United States engages in. And so what we've seen is these big companies have been engaging extensively in supply chain mapping, improving visibility of where things are, you know, upstream where things are downstream. You know, General Motors in my state has made, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of efforts on this front to the point now they can get a sense of, okay, we're starting to have issues with a part supplier in China. Where are our alternatives? Where's in inventory levels? How do we start taking corrective action today? That way we're not shutting a plant down in let's say 10 days from now. Well, that makes sense. And Jason, it feels like as a consumer, those moves by these companies have been pretty apparent. It seems like the supply chain kinks are largely working out of the system, at least for me as an end user. From your perspective, is that accurate? Is the supply chain, have we improved meaningfully since 2022? Yes, we've absolutely improved meaningfully from this time last year, sort of. This time last year was kind of peak disruption issues. If you take fourth quarter of 21 through really about the second quarter of 22 was kind of our peak uh, disruption problems. 
things are substantially better. Um, hopefully within another couple quarters, those glitches are going to be back to sort of where they were in 2018. Um, we had some issues in 18 just because we had a very robust manufacturing um, economy at that point in time. And so, you know, things had gotten a little, little jammed up then 2019, a lot of things eased because we were in a fairly deep manufacturing recession on the other hand. And so it seems like things are certainly getting back. Sectors that are kind of, you know, um, you know, uh, expanding, for example, aerospace, there still are quite a few issues because we had a lot of suppliers shut down or really curtail operations once the demand for aircraft plummeted once COVID hit. Now we're trying to ramp back up and that process takes time. So where you're still see, feeling pain is in sectors where there's increased demand. So aerospace um, and then the defense sector as well right now, um, there's still quite a few glitches. On the transportation front in 2022, as you mentioned, peak disruption in supply chain, we had $6 diesel and everything else going on, labor shortages for truckers and train workers. On the labor front, Jason, transportation wise, are, have we seen that return close to normal? Yeah, so I mean, right now we're in a freight recession in trucking. We have been really since um, the second quarter of 2022. Um, you know, we've seen dry van prices um, for the from the Bureau of Labor Statistics drop 20% year over year, which is the steepest decline ever. Now, they're still 20% above where they were before COVID, but that just gives you a sense of this market starting to normalize itself. On the rail side, rail service is Im improving, still probably isn't what it should be. And on that, you know, import export side on the ocean, um, you know, rates have come down substantially from where they were last year. We're not seeing the bottlenecks at the ports, So the log jam is has ended on that front. Well, that is good news. Jason, I've got a question for you. With your position in higher education, I'm curious, back when we saw CSI Miami come onto the scene, we saw a lot of students get interested in forensic science. And I saw departments grow across the country as folks were turned on to this for the first time. We've seen a lot of conversation about supply chains over the past few years. Are we seeing more students take a look at this as a career? No. If, if anything, it's probably been a net negative in terms of student interest in the, in the discipline. I think part of that is where CSI was cool, seeing all these glitches on TikTok when people are talking about they can't get their PlayStation 5 makes it very not cool. Um, I think there's a saturation for young folks hearing the phrase supply chain. It's almost come to have this negative connotation. Our program at Michigan State, we're kind of smooth and steady at about 360 to 380 students a year um, that go through the undergrad side. I've talked to folks at other programs who have seen enrollments in the major, though, decline by 15 or 20 percent or more. And it's kind of hard to isolate it. Another aspect is this is a discipline that tends to be a little bit more male dominant. Um, so typically about 60 to 70 percent of our students are men. You're seeing fewer men go to college today versus, let's say, 2017, 2018. And so part of that could be a gender composition difference um, in the makeup of the student body. It's just hard to tell. Fascinating. Fascinating, folks. It sounds like if you've got a young person heading off to college or looking for an industry, there might be some growth in the world of supply chain and logistics. Before we let you go, Jason Miller, looking out to this summer, are there any issues we should have on our radars that could cause disruption? The biggest thing right now is we need a debt ceiling deal. It doesn't matter what side of the political party you're on. We do not want a default in our debt. So that's right now the biggest wild card. 
and then just seeing if there's anything in the economic data that's showing we're starting to get sort of out of the manufacturing and sort of freight trough that we're in right now. So just keeping a close eye on what the market's doing. Uh, that is the name of the game. There will be a lot of economic indicators to watch over this summer. Folks, we have been talking with Dr. Jason Miller, professor of supply chain management at the Broad School at Michigan State University. And Jason Miller, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Thanks for having me on. Folks, stick around. We're going to talk through some more potential concerns in the world of transportation when we return looking at how diesel supply might be disrupted down the line. Leave it here for more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 BC. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the King of Poland for saving Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. water is open. It's time to go boating and fishing and leave stress in our wake. Feel the wind as we ride and a fish on the line. Reel in our first catch and feel the sun at our backs. It's get out on the water season. It's time to get on board. Find out where to get on board near you. Visit Take Me Fishing and Discover Boating to learn more. And please recreate responsibly. Get on board. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice U.S. 
For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're going to turn our focus. I guess we're going to keep our focus still in the realm of transportation, but we're going to turn that focus to fuel supply. Joining us now is Terry Vishwanath. She's the energy economist with CoBank, recently authored an interesting study highlighting some concerns about diesel supply going forward. Terry, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Mike, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Your recent piece is called Gasoline Demand Has Peaked, and that's a problem for diesel production. Terry, give me the punchline. Why is that a problem for diesel production? You know, it's it's just, it's kind of simple. Um, Mike, it's, as we think about the, you know, if we take a look at the crude oil barrel and as we refine that barrel, well, most of the barrel is actually used for gasoline production and a smaller amount for what we call the distillates, uh, jet fuel, and other products, et cetera. So if if we're going to see a shift in terms of gasoline demand, meaning we're losing, you're going to use it less, then the rest of the barrel kind of shrinks along with it. And, and so that's going to be that that's a big issue, I think, for consumers as, as we look ahead. Okay, Terry, that that helps me put this into perspective. So what we're talking about is we've got a barrel of crude oil, and in that barrel of crude oil, there are a number of different products. And the challenge is going to be, if I understand you correctly, deciding what percent of the barrel of crude goes into what particular distillate. Am I getting it correct? You absolutely are. So for every barrel we refine in the U.S., there's about 42. That's a you know 42 gallon barrel of of crude oil that yields about 45 gallons of petroleum products from our U.S. refineries. And at the end of the day, you've got about 43 percent. That's the highest volume is going to be gasoline production. 28 percent in what we call distillates. That's both diesel fuel and heating oil. Nine percent in jet fuel and 30, 13% for like a range of lower value products out of the barrel. And so as a result, if you're going to produce or need less gasoline demand, it generally means less need for refining capacity overall, which could create shortages for the rest of the barrel. All right, Terry. So now talk to me like I'm not an energy expert, which I am not. So if I hear <laughs> this, we've got 43% of the barrel of crude oil going to make gasoline. Gasoline demand is dropping, EVs, better fuel mileage, etc. Doesn't that mean we now have more of the barrel of crude to refine into diesel? Yeah. And Mike, it doesn't work that way. So what happens is that we actually have, you know, our, we have some flexibility, but not ultimate flexibility. So if we simply say, well, hey, wait a minute, we're using less gasoline. So why don't we produce more diesel? Now we can do that to a very limited degree. We have that flexibility. In fact, during the summertime, when we see more drivers on the road, we just finished off our Memorial Day weekend, a huge driving start to our summer season. Well, we can actually shift some of the production into more gasoline. And then when we swing back in the fall, kids are back in school, we produce more diesel and heating fuel for the upcoming winter season. But the thing is, it's just marginally more. So we do see that seasonal bump in gasoline demand during the summer, and we actually offset that need by making more, but it's not an infinite 
flexibility for these refineries. And so at the end of the day, if we use less gasoline, we're also going to be producing less diesel. Or alternatively, we're going to overproduce gasoline. And so we make enough diesel and the rest of the products in the barrel that may not be decarbonizing at the same pace. Okay, so this is the distinction coming before us here. If we look at production for the diesel jet A heating oil staying the same, if we recognize we need to keep this economy working, we got to right. keep diesel going out there, we're going to have to pr produce a lot of gasoline then. Does gasoline have any other uses? Is there another industrial place we can put the surplus gasoline or would we just have to mark it down? You know, what we are going to do, it's going to be a shell game, Mike. We're going to put a lot of that excess production out to the global market, but there is a limitation. And so we're going to get a point of saturation where you're just going to have to discount or make less. And so that's kind of it. And you probably, you know, you'd mentioned, you know, in terms of understanding the barrel, hey, it's everyone has the experience, drive up to your gas station and look at the difference in price between gasoline and diesel. Do you remember last year? It was pretty wide. Um, and now it's kind of getting back where no one's, you know, no one's um, sort of a uh, um, you know, moaning about it now, but you know, the fact is, is that those wide spreads between gasoline and diesel will probably stay with us longer. We're back into what we what feels like a normal spread, but over the long run, it's going to have to stay wide if we're going to produce enough diesel and jet fuel to get where we need to go. And when you say the spread is going to have to stay wide, Terry, if I understand you correctly, what's going to happen is the spread on diesel is going to have to widen so much over gasoline that they right. can sell the diesel at a profit and and subsidize gas production. Is is that where this could go? Yeah, that's exactly right, Mike. So historically, the gap between diesel and gasoline prices has been, you know, pretty small, pretty minor. And so last five years have averaged prior to last year's blowout about 38 cents. Last year, however, diesel buyers, our truckers were paying about a dollar four more a gallon, so over a dollar more a gallon for their fuel. And it just proportionally drove up the costs of really every product on the shelf, right? That's how, that's what we deliver. Absolutely. I mean, you're you're always paying for transport, no matter what you're paying for, that cost is fixed in there. Terry, eh let's talk timeline for this crunch right. to be apparent on the diesel side what sort of efficiency gains what sort of gasoline drawdowns uh, do we need to see here in the coming years yeah so you know what i think a lot of eyes are going to be on electric vehicle adoption and that's going to be really important an important driver so here to date Mike, really, the big driver has been, you know, the blowout that we experienced in gasoline prices, those long lines back in the 1970s, we got to go back that far, back in the 1970s, really drove fuel efficiency. Um, and so we're using less gasoline, although there are more drivers on the road. So really, it's been about fuel efficiency. But as we look ahead, it's going to be about the sort of vehicle we're putting drivers in. The more electric vehicles, the less gasoline use, and the more you're going to see this spread begin to change. Now, looking at it from the other side, Terry, and you didn't talk about this in your report. So if, if this is something you've got the research handy for, by all means, we can punt. But I'm curious, given one of the other trends we're seeing in the diesel industry is the surge in production of renewable diesel. Yes. Could you envision a world where we see crude produced diesel continue to decline and the industry fills the gap with renewable diesel? Mike, I think that's a really excellent question. And what we find is that, you know, we've seen some of these refineries that have been, uh, you know, have have actually converted to producing biodiesel, right? 
And what we find is the amount of throughput, the production we're able to produce from those refineries that have converted is simply not the same. It's not a one-for-one -one change. So I don't think we're going to make it up with biodiesel. Biodiesel is going to be an important part of the equation in terms of producing some diesel, but really not enough to power, you know, to power our ag economy. So we get about 75% of all our farm equipment is run on diesel. Uh, we transport 90% of our farm products by truck. And it pumps diesel, you know, our, our, our diesel for our irrigation. It's about 20% of the agriculture's irrigation water use is, is what we're pumping with. So it's really important. And we don't really have a great substitute, so we're going to probably have to pay more for it. Okay, folks, this is the headline. We've got to be aware of these rising costs that we've seen over the past two years. Even if inflation's coming down, not all of these costs might be coming down. Diesel is one we're going to have to watch for. Terry, you handled that question so well. I'm going to throw you another one that's kind of off the wall. Looking at the jet fuel share, right. crude oil's production, this is another place we're hearing biofuels lauded as a potential solution. If we can add more biofuels to the jet fuel capacity, can we turn more of that jet fuel into diesel or are they too chemically different? You know, that's such a wonderful question, Mike. Um, so I, and it's really funny because I, you know, I actually flew out this Memorial Day weekend to Florida. And so I was on a United flight and they talk about how they're converting waste products into jet fuel, right? But once again, it's not a one for one to get the amount of jet fuel we need. You're just not able to produce at the same commercial level. So we're going to be hard pressed and these are going to be areas of the economy that are going to be hard to decarbonize so they're not great substitutes standing in the wings so you're probably going to simply pay more and it's certainly those things when there are great substitutes the transitions can be a little rocky terry this is something that growers need to have on their minds if they want to read get the details tell us where can they go to do that oh thanks so much so i would love to have your listeners uh, take a look at my work. It's out on cobank.com. That's C-O-B-A-N-K.com. I'm under the Knowledge Exchange. I'm your power, energy, and water analyst. I'm an energy economist covering the sector. So would love to have them read and, and certainly reach out to me. Folks, check that out. There are fantastic resources available to all of us here in agriculture. Terry is one of them. We've been speaking with Terry Vishwan. She's the energy economist at Cobank. And Terry, thank you so much for joining the program today. Thank you, Mike. You have a great week. And folks, stay with us when AOA comes back. We're going to talk with Krista Harden, the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. June 1st, it's World Dairy Day, something to celebrate. Leave it here. We'll have more AOA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up welcome to the 2023 corn sprint please be silent as the runners take their marks and looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with biopath a biological fertilizer complement from the mosaic company wait wait and the early favorite has crossed the finish line get the most out of your fertilizer investment don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. 
radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. After yesterday's big sell-off, grains are once again under pressure following yesterday's crop progress report and some better wetter weather in the forecast. Planting progress showed that 92% of the corn crop is planted compared to 81% last week with 72% emerged and a rating of 69% good to excellent. That's compared to 73% a year ago. The best chances of rain in the seven-day forecast are in the western plains with some falling in the central and eastern corn belt, but there are even better rains expected on the horizon in the second week of June. Planting progress for soybeans showed that 83% of the crop has been planted compared to 66% last week, with emergence at 56% compared to 36% a year ago. Soybean inspections yesterday were 8.8 million bushels for 22-23, putting total inspections down 2% from last year. The USDA is estimating soybean exports at 2.015 billion bushels. Now that's down 7% from last year. China's economic growth may be lagging, and July soybeans on the Dalian Exchange closed down 1.6%, putting prices at their lowest level in the past two years. And wheat is trading lower once again. The winter wheat good to excellent ratings jumped to 34% versus 31% last week thanks to those recent rains. Spring wheat is at 85% planted versus 64% last week. And emergence is sitting at 57% versus 32. Wheat inspections total 14 million bushels for the week ending on the 25th, putting total inspections at 719 million bushels. Then that's down 2% from last year. Stock futures are also under pressure this morning. The VIX is trading near 18, while the dollar continues to firm up after posting a nearly 11-week high earlier in this session. And crude oil prices are down almost 2% in follow-through selling from yesterday's price collapse. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... (laughs) Hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track, no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today. We've been talking transportation, keeping our vehicles moving, but now we're going to turn our focus to keeping ourselves moving. One of the best fuels to do that, of course, is dairy milk in particular. One of the leading proponents of dairy joins us next. Krista Hart, the president and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council, joins us. And Krista, thank you so much for taking the time. 
Well, thank you, Mike. That was a pretty nice lead in. I like it a lot. Well, you're welcome. Feel free to use it. I'll just bill you for it, uh, <laughs> uh, Krista. Before we jump into this conversation, if you would tell our listeners, what is U.S. Dairy Export Council and what do you guys do? Well, thank you so much. And um, we, you know, we export milk and milk products. And I, I love this organization. It's made up of all the dairy farmers in the U.S., you know, almost 30,000 of them but also close to 120 companies. There are processors, cooperatives, um, exporters, allied industry that actually come together at the same table. We're the only organization that does that with all the producers as well as um, all these companies to talk about how do we make sure the rest of the world is getting to enjoy wonderful dairy and dairy products from the U.S. And that's what we're here to talk about today. And this week, we are going to spend globally a little bit more time talking about milk because June 1st, Chris, of course, is World Milk Day. Can you tell us a little bit about what World Milk Day is designed to celebrate? Well, it's really an opportunity to recognize the importance of milk as a global food and to frankly celebrate the dairy sector you know, around the world. Um, and besides the new, uh, essential nutrition that dairy provides, there's a huge economic impact of dairy as well. Millions of people around the world rely on dairy for their livelihoods. In the U.S. alone, um, the U.S. industry, dairy industry supports more than three million jobs. So it's, it's kind of a day just to celebrate really the, all the attributes of dairy um, and to enjoy them and to remember, you know, really the impact it has um, on populations around the world. Krista, when we think about sort of global dairy demand, 2022 was a year we saw, as we've talked about so far mm -hmm. on the show many times, lots of disruptions to global trade. But 2022, as I understand it, was a year to celebrate from a dairy export perspective, wasn't it? It really was. It was a very, very good year for U.S. dairy exports. We finished the year up 25% at $9.6 and that's with the B dollars. Now, it's the first time we've ever crossed the $9 billion mark in dairy exports. And we were up in volume and value, which is dollar sales. So it's really a win-win for our dairy producers and companies and those who depend on this industry. We were very excited. It was the third year in a row. We'd broken records. So, um, you know, we were, we were excited about 2022. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, third year in a row that we've rec broken records throughout the COVID pandemic, the U.S. dairy industry has really been a rock star supplier to the globe. Krista, with that 26% jump, have we seen changes in our customer base? Have, have we added new customers for U.S. dairy? We certainly have. We're growing our market share, which is, I think, is what you always want, right? We want to increase, um, you know, your your play in the market. And we've been able to do that in key markets around the world, um, bringing new customers and, you know, going head to head with our competition in some key places as well. So we were very excited about really how um, the last three years have unfolded for us and happy to talk about some of those markets if we have a few minutes to do so. Well, lucky for you, Krista, we have a few minutes, and I understand you're going to be taking a trip to Asia here this week to talk about dairy. Can you tell us what that what that is and where you're going? Yes, thanks, Mike. It's a long plane ride to Singapore, but we are very excited. We're taking, I think, seven farmers with us from around the country to go to the Center for Dairy Excellence that the U.S. dairy industry actually opened during COVID. So we have not had a chance from the U.S. to go visit as much as we would like. But it's up and running, really, you know, working with our members who have offices in Southeast Asia, as well as customers expanding that market. Southeast Asia has been and will continue to be 
um, hopefully even growing more, a very, very important market um, for U.S., especially dairy ingredients. Um, but all of our products, we're very excited about the potential there and being in Singapore with kind of a hub of commerce in that region will be, is very exciting for U.S. dairy. Krista, the, the the dairy industry is fascinating in that it's kind of like crude oil. It's amazing what one can do with just a gallon of raw <laughs> fluid milk from a cow. You mentioned dairy ingredients being big sellers into Asia. Could you outline for our listeners what, what would be an example of a dairy ingredient? Certainly. And it's, it's a number of things. It's skim milk powder, it's whole milk powder, it's lactose, permeate, whey coming from cheese. It's just a number of ingredients. And you're exactly right that, you know, just an ounce of dairy, a gallon of dairy, however you want to describe it, can be used in so many different ways and, and you know, built into traditional diets as well. You don't have to consume dairy just in the way we do in the U.S. or in, in the Western world. There are many other, it's so versatile, many other ways to consume and enjoy and get those nutritional benefits from dairy. And I think because it is so functional, it is so versatile, that's another very, you know, strong reason that there's such demand and growing demand for dairy and dairy products around the world. You know, and Chris, when we talk about dairy products as a whole, when we've got cheese, when we've got everything else lumped in, we continue to see that demand skyrocketing. But of course, June 1st is World Milk Day and fluid milk consumption, at least in America, has been on the decline for some time. You mentioned not everybody around the world consumes dairy the way we do. What are you seeing for fluid milk consumption around the world or broadly? How does that look? Well, you know, I'll tell you, a lot of folks don't realize that the rest of the world, not all of the world, enjoys fresh milk like we do. You know, go to their, your, your grocery market and get a gallon, you know, jug or, you know, whatever. A lot of it's shelf, you know, stable um, milk. So it's different consumption, but there is a lot of growth and interest um, in fluid as well as the other products. It's just consumed in different ways. We like to say, you know, you can eat your milk as well. It doesn't have to be in a glass. It can be and all these wonderful products we just talked about. And, you know, for me, sometimes mine's an ice cream cone, I have to admit. <laughs> oh, that's so true. I mean, it, it does come in so many different, uh, different wonderful forms. So we've got Asia, as you mentioned, that southeast part of Asia looking very exciting from a dairy export perspective. Krista, I understand you've also been in conversations with, uh, with your compatriots over in Europe. And of course, that is where we've seen so many of the supply chain challenges over this past year. Does it look like you could see U.S. dairy moving more into Europe down the line? Well, you know, with Europe, it, it's interesting. There's a big trade imbalance when it comes to dairy. We import about $2 billion worth of dairy and dairy products. We only export, you know, a little over $100 million. So it's a real imbalance there as part of the conversation. Some of that's regulation, some of it's standards, different um, factors that go into why we are not able to get into Europe. But we're going to continue to push for that and hope for, for better treatment, if you will, um, but we're also excited about Latin America, and I want to make sure that we have time to talk about that. That is really a bright spot this year. Not only Mexico, which is our number one market, our, you know, our close neighbor and great ally when it comes to dairy and, and growth potential there, but we're also seeing really good numbers, you know, and consumption and demand coming out of South America, Brazil, um, other countries down there, as well as Central America. So we're really looking at Latin America as an emerging powerhouse for us, at least right now, um, which is very exciting. That is exciting. And you know, it's interesting that Latin and South American strength, uh, I hear that similarly from our friends at the U.S. Meat Export Federation. The growth there has been fairly has been fairly profound. And Krista, it sounds like you're optimistic that it could be at least sustained in the short term. 
We believe so. We sure, we sure do. We work very hard um, in building relationships, customers, con being consistent in a market is very important. So you have to kind of be there, show them you're not leaving. You're going to stay there. You're going to go head to head with other competition. Um, and so far, that's really paid off for us. We cover Latin America very well with our offices. Our farmers go down there a good bit and talk. And certainly our member companies have um, representatives on the ground there. So, you know, I'm hopeful that this is just the beginning of a growing um, market in Latin America and certain countries. That would be good news. But of course, the key to this is the ability to get that American dairy product loaded onto ships, loaded onto trains and carried out. Krista, we've seen port disruptions, particularly on the West Coast over the past couple of years. In talking to your exporter members, are things improving? Are they able to get their products out and over to Asia if they're, uh, that's where they're headed? Yeah, it's a little better, Mike. It's not as good as it should be. And I, we're all a little fearful. It's just a Band-Aid fixes and that with another, you know, kind of unplanned or unscheduled or unusual situation, we may have problems again. So we continue to work with the industry, the shipping industry and all the collateral supportive industries around shipping um, about how do we make sure that we're not just doing Band-Aids. We're really having fixes. We're communicating better. We're more um, transparency and accountability in the system. Obviously, Congress passed a very important law that we believe helps some, but there's still things to do. I meet, you know, constantly with um, the shipping industry. We're really trying to learn the lessons from what happened right after COVID and certainly those disruptions and hope to avoid them in the future. Well, that is that certainly makes sense there, Krista. Looking forward, you mentioned U.S. dairy growing market share, setting records in exports over the past three years, heading into year number four. What does U.S. dairy need to do to maintain or grow that market share further? Well, I'll tell you, you know, it's, it's really tough right now. Demand is really tight around the world. Um, you have increased competition. Obviously, we have inflation um, really high, you know, over 10% in many of our markets. So that definitely creates economic uncertainty with consumers. Um, we have lackluster Chinese demand, which is also takes its toll in a marketplace with that population. And also, you know, just um, the uncertainty of what China may do um, really is, you know, causing all of dairy, not just in the U.S., but all of exporting um, countries to really, you know, be cautious as we look this year. So this year, you know, a little more cautious. We won't have the big growth that we have the last three. I do believe we'll have, um, I'm so optimistic, frankly, about, um, you know, having a good year in 2023. And beyond that, just so exciting. We really have great opportunities. We're going to take more and more of the market share um, midterm and long term. There's no doubt about it. Well, that is good news for the U.S. dairy producer. Folks, we've been talking with Krista Harden, President CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. Learn more at usdairy.com. Tune in in a sec with more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. 
We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome. And the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We win. We, 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 we are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too. Through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. I think farming picked me. I didn't pick farming. I'm not afraid to try something new. It's my farm, my family, and our future. My channel Seedsman gets that. I get access to innovative products with personalized advice backed by data to maximize my yield potential. With Channel, I know I'll prosper for years to come. Define your future at channel.com slash future. Read and follow pesticide label directions, IRM, grain marketing, and other stewardship practices. Copyright 2022 Bayer Group. All rights reserved. It's the most important race of the year. The one where winning is everything. Where the decisions you make now can and will define your entire season. The yields you're dreaming of are either won here or lost here. This is Corn Sprint 2023. You win it with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Specially formulated to make nutrients more available during the most critical uptake periods and strengthen root systems for better absorption. It's the kind of edge that gets your crops all the way to the finish line with greater yield potential, greater return on your fertilizer investment, and just plain old greatness. So win the corn sprint. Include Biopath in your early season fertilizer application. Contact your local retailer or visit cornsprint.com. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. 
friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder, being themselves is second nature. Summer camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for making AOA a part of your day today. Before we go on today's episode, I wanted to take a look at the commodity markets. We've got a little bit of red in the grains today. Corn, beans, wheat all down on the day. Well, along with oats, rice, and you name it. Grains are a little bit lower. Over on the livestock side, however, we've got, well, live cattle, feeder cattle, both down slightly. A little bit of green, however, in the lean hog market. Joining us now for an update on what's going on in the hog and cattle markets is Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. And Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you for having me. You know, it's interesting. We're seeing the cattle market take a little bit of a breather today, Dennis. So we're going to circle back. We'll hit that at the end. I want to talk to you first about what is going on here in the hog market. We've got these contracts up $6, $7 here in the last two days. What is going on? Yeah, well, we saw the market collapse uh, last week uh, as the uh, Prop 12 uh, concerns really highlighted uh, the the fund selling. Funds were aggressive sellers Wednesday, Thursday, Friday of last week, driving the summer hogs to a sharp discount to the CME Lean Hog Index, which is a very rare situation. Normally, you would see summer contracts trading premium to the index. That all reversed yesterday. Uh, with uh, just an oversold market and uh, indications maybe, and this is a rumor, so there is no confirmation of such, but maybe that that uh, Prop 12 uh, implementation of Prop 12 would be delayed uh, on July 1st or past July 1st. That's the rumor that seems to have triggered the massive buying yesterday with the market limit up, and uh, we've seen upside follow through today. All right, Dennis, but if that rumor is what's floating out there, if that's the fundamental quote-unquote catalyst here that's moving this thing, I imagine this rally could be on a little bit of a knife's edge. Are you putting some management on? Well, we'll see what exactly how this unfolds. The market actually gapped higher today, and we have a very rare three-day island bottom in place in the most active July hog contract. That's a rare, pretty much a, you don't see a lot of island-type tops or bottoms in the hog market. We've seen uh, the, the funds we know are holding a record uh, large short position. We're seeing short covering. Open interest is dropping on the price rise. Uh, we're seeing a lot of trade in the put options. So we believe the managed money coming out of short futures and perhaps replacing the position with uh, long put options in the August, October, and Decembers. Dennis, when you're watching a thinly traded market like hogs that is rather volatile, is there much support for support or resistance lines, technicals on a chart? Uh, we've seen, the, I, I guess, uh, 
there, the, the market is so volatile, it's really difficult to, to outline specific support and resistance. Uh, I guess the way I approach it in a situation like this is uh, I go by the basis, where should the summer hogs be trading relative to the hog index, which is just over 80 right now. Now we have June hogs at uh, about 82, July hogs at 82. Uh, versus an index that's just above 80. So we're getting the basis more in line, which may begin to offer some stability to the market. All right. Keep an eye on those hog contracts. Dennis, let's turn our focus over to the live uh, live cattle uh, markets here. We've got a little bit of red on the screen today. Cattle market just taking a breather after yesterday's run. Yeah, that's right. It was an impressive move yesterday. Kind of upside follow-through from late last week. Uh, fresh contract ties across the board on higher open interest. Technically, the market's uh, very strong. Uh, fundamentally, it's powerful strong. We are expecting higher cash steer prices to be paid this week by the beef packer. And uh, yeah, today is just a, a pullback. In fact, Mike, I wouldn't be a bit surprised to see live cattle futures close, uh, closer to unchanged, possibly even higher on the day. You, Dennis, you mentioned expected to see cash cattle trade higher this week. I don't. I haven't seen any cash trades come out. Do you expect the bids to be where? Asking prices in the Southern Plains are at 172. And again, as you've indicated, there's been no bids come to the surface yet. Uh, cash market was higher last week. Uh, the previous week, it was steady, slightly higher. So uh, we, we are expecting a, a fully steady to higher. And again, the point is futures are still at a sharp discount. So uh, even if you trade steady cash, we think the the odds of a continuation of the rally in the June and August October live cattle is pretty high. That makes sense. Dennis, looking down at feeder cattle, we're seeing them find a little green here on the sell-off in corn. What are your thoughts here on feeder cattle as we get deeper into the summer? Well, I have to believe that the long-term prices still go higher. We're approaching in the front month feeders, the, the magic 240 area. Uh, front month August feeders are at 238 right now. That's bound to offer some re, uh, resistance, if nothing more than psychological resistance. But uh, uh, I think you can count on uh, feeder prices uh, north of 240, uh, assuming we raise a decent corn crop and corn prices continue to scoot lower. Now, Dennis, it's been a while since we've seen that record trade in feeder cattle. Was the top at 242 back in 2014, 2015? I think that was probably the top. Yes, just above 240 is, is the area and 172 and a half roughly in the live cattle. If the feeder cattle market were to poke its head over that 242 mark, uh, Dennis, that would be pretty bullish, wouldn't it? Yeah, the, the key to the feeders recently is the rain in the southern plains. The, that's improving the pasture conditions rather dramatically. That will restrict placements, and it will also stabilize the cow kill. Both of those events would be quite bullish. All right, folks, there is a lot coming here in the trade down the line. Looking down, Dennis, you mentioned you expect to see greater rallies here in those deferred months live cattle. Are you putting any risk management in place on the live cattle side here today, or are you going to let the market come to you? 
Yeah, you know, Mike, right now we are not actively hedging in the live cattle, and if and when we do, we'll approach the market from a very cautious put spread standpoint, leaving the upside open. This is not a market that I want to cut profit short. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. A good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor, restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. 